My name's Chris. I'm an intern here. Uh, the past, this is the third summer in a row that I've had the privilege to uh, preach and sort of open up the Word of God and uh, sort of present just some cool things for us. Um, so if you've been here during the summers the past couple of years, you know that the, the elders, our pastors, they uh, mostly give Josh a break and they, they get the opportunity to preach um, Two summers ago, we preached through, all the way through James. Last summer, uh, we did the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And then this summer, we've sort of been given a little more freedom in that we were told to pick a psalm uh, from the book of Psalms. And for the most part, they were all up for um, our own choosing, uh, with the exception of a few that are taught on a lot and sort of uh, as good as they are, uh, sort of done to death. Um, but so uh, last week we had Jake, and and he uh, did, I believe, seventy one. That's right, seventy three, three, seventy three. And uh, this week uh, I'm going almost to the very end of the Book of Psalms, um, and we're going to be in Psalm one forty six. If you'd like to get there, um, so in the past. I guess this would be our third year I've preached. I've learned a couple things. Um, one is that it gets really hot up here and I get sort of sweaty. Um, there's not really anything I can do about that. The second, the second thing I've learned is that I tend to go a little long. Um, the first summer, my 12-page outline resulted in about a 50-minute sermon. <laughs> the uh, last summer, it was about 40 minutes. And this tonight, uh, I've got six and a half pages, so hopefully... <laughs> It'll be nice and short, and we'll, we'll get out of here. Um, so, yeah. So let's go ahead and get started. So last week, um, Jake presented a psalm written by Asaph, and uh, a lot of us would assume, or we know that most of the psalms are actually written by David. There's a good chunk written by Asaph. Um, this psalm tonight, 146, there's no author that's ascribed to it and um so it's it sort of stands out in that way that it doesn't give us a lot to draw from as far as the context goes and we'll get more into that um but before i read it i'm just going to sort of lay out what we're going to be doing so we have uh i'm going to first read the psalm all the way through then i'll present some of that contextual stuff even though there's not much because we don't have an uh, ascribed author, and then we'll go verse by verse, and then sort of try to tie it all together with a nice pretty bow at the end, and see if we can walk out of here with, with something. Um, so, um, it's a short psalm, ten verses, let's dig in and go. Um, so it starts, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, I will praise the Lord as long as I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help 
is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. So, this is a psalm of praise. Four times he says, praise the Lord. And uh, from 146 all the way to 150, that's how every one of those psalms starts. So the book of Psalms uh, closes with five, we can call them hallelujah uh, psalms. Um, praise the Lord, as it's translated here, the Hebrew word for that is hallelujah. So when we say hallelujah, we are literally joining in with our brothers in the past saying Hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Our brothers and sisters all the way back in the, in, uh, uh, the Holy Land, they were saying that. Um, so we're joining in their praises uh, using their very language. Um, so like I said, typically we would try to look at who wrote the psalm or any passage of Scripture first and try to draw from that some context that we can then interpret the passage with. Um, but we don't have an author here. A lot of people assume that it was written by David, uh, but that's just an assumption, and there's really nothing that backs that up, either in Scripture or outside of Scripture. So for our purposes, we're going to just treat it as an anonymously written letter, or an anonymously written psalm. Um, So we don't have the benefit of that context Um, what that does is remove our ability to draw depth from the words in the pages. So the the psalms that David wrote, we can line a lot of them up with the things he went through in life. For example, in Psalm 51, uh, when he says, have mercy on me, um, deliver me from my guilt, we know he has just been convicted of adultery and murder. And he just in desperation is crying out to God, have mercy on me, Lord, against you only have I sinned. And so we know the depth of that cry. We know exactly where he's coming from, that he's just been called out on these terrible things. Um, Yet he has a merciful God and he's pleading. But in 146, uh, we just don't have that. Um, We don't know how this guy, the psalmist, got to a place where he can say, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. Every one of my breath, just until I die, Lord, I will praise you. We don't know where this is coming from um, to make it a little more relatable. Um, However, we can assume two things about the guy that wrote um, this psalm. Number one, uh, the number one assumption is that he's a human being. It's an assumption. I hope it's true. That would be pretty wacky if it wasn't. But So automatically we relate to him because he's been through the human experience. He's lived in this broken world as a broken person uh, trying to just find purpose and meaning in life. So he's going through life um, just like we go through life. And sure, it's a different culture. It's a different time in history. But he still deals with a lot of the same root things we deal with. 
Number two thing we can uh, sort of assume about the author is that up, into, up to this point in his life, the things that he believes about God have proven themselves to be true. Um, I doubt he would be able to exclaim that he will praise the Lord his entire life if he, time after time, sees God fail. Um, so he's been through enough that proves that his belief in the Lord um, and his promises are uh, just his promises are faithful, and that it doesn't his hope does not return void. Um, so these are just two things to keep in mind as we walk verse by verse through the psalm. So we're going to start in verse one. Uh, so it says, "Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul." So we we can see this, and it was written by. A person for personal reasons. He's in a place where he can say, praise the Lord, or at least plea with himself to praise the Lord, to draw that praise out of himself. It was probably also used in a a congregation setting. So we have it both on a personal level. He's bringing himself to worship the Lord. And then also it was used for a group of people, a body uh, in the synagogue for people to worship the Lord. Um, So in the phrase, praise the Lord, O my soul, we see that the psalmist's praise is not just surface level. Um, He's essentially saying that the source of his hallelujah is just in the depth of his soul, Um, that it's not just on his lips, but rather it's coming from his very being. Um, It's not just an obligatory, like, I was raised Jewish, so I'm going to say praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. It's him truly believing in his heart, in, in the depths of his soul, and it drawing out, just overflowing out in praise. Um, praise the Lord, O my soul. But as we see in verse 2, the source of his praise is not only uh, deep within him, but the duration is also long. He says, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being As long as he has his being, he will say hallelujah. This is the psalmist's commitment to remain steadfast in his praise um, and to not become idle in his worship throughout his lifetime. Not one breath will be wasted on anything but praise to the Lord is what he's saying. Um, So then we move on to verses 3 and 4. And when initially reading through this psalm, they sort of stuck out because we have the initial call to praise and then after four, we have just description after description of God. And then in three and four, it talks about man. Um, So it seems a little jagged and out of place, um, but it really isn't. It's all related for sure. Um, So it says, put not your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Um, so the psalmist sees this, um, the idea of putting our hope in man as a boundary to our praise. Um, that's how it's related. He's saying, I will praise the Lord. I cannot praise man because there's no salvation in man. Um, I think too often we fall into the trap of thinking that we can find security in our fellow human beings and what they offer and promise. 
Um, and this isn't just exclusive to finding hope in other people. We, even probably more often, we turn inward into ourselves to find hope either in our knowledge or in a false sense of control that we have about our life. Um, but it's all just as dangerous and it all strips away our ability to just focus solely on the Lord if we're continually focusing on people. Um, so in the verse, verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes. Uh, in the Son of Man there's no uh, salvation. And Son of Man, just a side note here, Jesus uses that to describe himself a lot in the Gospels, but here it's just referring to man in general. So it's a blanket statement for mankind. Um, so that word trust there, it's linked to salvation. So salvation after all, it's, they're both in verse 3. Um, the word salvation is translated from the Hebrew word tesua, and it's referring to the type of help we seek when we feel threatened or in danger. Um, and I think a lot of the times when we hear the word threatened or even danger, we think of a physical threatening presence or uh, feeling in danger physically for our lives. Um, but it can even refer to our sense of comfort being threatened or our sense of uh, control or our security being threatened. Um, so when we put this type of trust, this deep trust, um, in anything but the Lord, when we're feeling threatened, and it, whether it's physically threatened or just emotionally threatened, spiritually threatened, whatever it may be, um, we see that uh, we um, like it just returns void. We we elevate ourselves and others to a place of an idol where the Lord should be. Um, so when we're seeking that security, when we're seeking that comfort. Um, and we put it in what someone can provide us or what we can provide ourselves, uh, it comes back false. It may not immediately, and we may immediately get a sense of satisfaction from that, but ultimately, man fails. Um, So in verse 4, the psalmist sort of takes it a step further and explains why there can be no salvation in man, and we've sort of touched on it already, but... He says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On this very day, his, on that very day, his plans perish. And immediately what I thought of was in James, in chapter 4 of his letter. Uh, he, he's talking about people who obsess over planning out their life, um, saying, we'll go and do this tomorrow, and the next day we'll do this. Um, and ultimately, he says that we can't know what tomorrow will bring. We can't have hope in what our plans are for tomorrow. Um, he says that we're just a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It, our lives are fragile, and our plans are like a mist. Um, if you've ever driven to work or to wherever early in the morning and there's just a a fog, like sometimes it, it settles in and you can't see, but by the time you get to work, it's all cleared up. Like that's the duration of our life, a single commute to work in the essence of eternity, you know. It's, it's, it's hardly anything. Uh, so when we're f- trying to place our hope in that, it just doesn't make sense. When we are given a God who's eternal, who's uh, faithful through and through uh, forever. 
Um, anything else is just futile and fruitless. So uh, in verse 5, the, the focus sort of shifts again. And uh, he focuses, he shifts from the idea of our hope being in man being futile to the idea that uh, we can rely on a, on a trustworthy and eternal God. Our hope is secure. Um, so in verse 5, he says, Blessed is he who help." I'll start over. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So a lot of the times that word hope in our day-to-day life, we think of it as just passive expectations. Um, during flu season, we think, oh, I hope I don't get sick. Uh, back when Lost was airing, as the last episode was coming, uh, you said, I hope it doesn't let me down. I hope it answers every one of my questions. You know, um, If we go to a restaurant where we always order the same thing and we just feel like, oh, I want to order something new tonight. I hope this tastes good. I hope it doesn't let me down. It's this idea of expectation that ultimately, in the long run, it doesn't matter. Um, if you're still shaken up about the finale of Lost, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it, it doesn't matter uh, that your questions weren't answered. Um, it didn't affect your identity. It didn't shake you to the core. Um, however, the hope here, um, the hope whose hope is in the Lord his God, it's referring to something much deeper. It's sort of connected to that trust and salvation that's in uh, verse 3. Um, the word hope here literally means a total grounding of one's confidence and expectation, even in the face of trouble. So unlike the other kind of uh, shallow hope, this is the kind of hope that is unshakable and will remain no matter what the circumstances are that we're going through. Um, when we say hope in the Lord, it's not us just crossing our fingers hoping he like decides to do something, you know. Hoping in the Lord means banking absolutely everything in life on the belief that our God will come through and deliver on his promises. Uh, this is the kind of hope that's just so deeply rooted within us that um, if we truly walk in that hope, it will impact every area of our life. It will uh, reflect in every circumstances, whether good or tragic. That hope is unshakable. Um, and I think that's the kind of hope that the psalmist is uh, writing this psalm out of. So after saying how silly it is to put our hope and trust in fellow human beings, the psalmist focuses on the contrast between humans and the Lord. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. After that, he f- uh, shifts his focus by... Um, looking at who that God is, um, who it is we can put our hope in uh, and it not return void. So in verse 6, God as creator is in the spotlight. Uh, He says, uh, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in him, uh, God keeps his faith forever. Um, So he created heaven and earth and everything on earth and everything in the sea and everything in heaven. And not only that, but he keeps his faith forever. He is always faithful. Um, He's eternal 
and also his faithfulness is eternal. So everything about him just lasts forever. Um, So starting in verse 7, we've got, um, I've separated it into seven different things that the Lord does. Um, So the psalmist will start listing things that the Lord does, uh, people that he uh, just loves and serves. Um, So we're going to sort of go through this list and... um, I hope that at least one or two or maybe all of them are relatable in some way to your experience in life. Um, it's sort of just a list of how he makes good on his people's hope in him. So how uh, his hope never returns void uh, if we are to live our lives in a way where our hope is firmly secured in him. So number one, and this starts in verse 7. So God executes justice for the oppressed. So if we are marginalized in any way, God never joins in with the oppressors. Uh, He never mocks us. He never uh, adds to it. Um, He he is holy where our our culture and man is not. Um, He is standing alongside us, um, advocating for us and fighting for us. And uh, he's telling us that no matter what society or other people say, we still have worth and value and are loved because he, the God of the universe, the eternal God who reigns forever, loves us and values us and gives us worth. Um, Number two, he gives food to the hungry. So Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we can do that in faith, knowing that he can and will provide. Our Lord, our Lord is a provider. He provides everything we need, whether we're spiritually or physically hungry, um, or maybe we're both. God looks after his flock and makes sure we are nourished um, in the ways that we need to be. Number three, God sets prisoners free. In that time, it was likely referring to slave, slaves and slavery, Um, but here we can apply it to our lives as uh, setting us free from spiritual bondage, um, bondage to sin. We we have been set free when our hope is in the Lord. Um, At one point or another, we were all prisoners to our own sin, uh, enemies of God. We were in desperate need of liberation, and God stepped in uh, and set us free so we can know him and live life with him and seek to advance his kingdom. Um, Number four, and this starts in uh, verse eight. Uh, God opens the eyes of the blind. So this was the one that hit me the hardest when I was walking through this passage. Um, So before Jesus changed my life, uh, I was just completely ignorant to the fact that I was a sinner in need of saving um, I hurt and used people for my own benefit. Uh, I, uh, I was just selfish in every friendship and relationship I had. Um, I, I, I truly did believe that Jesus was God and that he came and died for sins, but I never saw my sins as something as 
bad enough that needed redeeming for because society, they focus on the big things and these were all things that, you know, were taught a lot of way, in a lot of ways that uh, if something is in the way of something you want, then just get that thing. Do with it what you need to do to get it. Um, so I never saw the need for Jesus' death for my sins. Um, and then in the middle of a Christmas Eve that I couldn't sleep, probably about seven or eight years ago, I, I was reading the Bible because I couldn't sleep, and I just turned to the, the Christmas story, and uh, it finally all just clicked. He opened my eyes to my desperate need, to how deeply rooted my sin was within me. Um, I went from ignorant, totally ignorant towards my sin, to uh, just totally like liberated from that. Because as deep as my sin went, his grace went deeper. And uh, his conviction that night was what I needed to finally put faith in him and walk with him. And without experience that, I wouldn't have known what true love is. I wouldn't know how to replicate that to the world to show people love. Um, So God opens the eyes of the blind. Without Jesus, we're blind uh, to our sin and to the damage it causes both us and others. Um, We hold on to our idols and sins, senselessly searching for some sense of security or joy. Um, God uses conviction to open our eyes and absolutely demolish that ignorance so we can repent from those sins and turn to him. All right, fifth thing. God lifts up those who are bowed down. Most of the time, the Bible uses the phrase bowed down as a synonym for uh, being humbled. So people who are bowed down are usually, you picture people on their hands and knees just sort of bowed down praying or worshiping. Um, And that could be true for this passage, but most of the commentaries and interpretations I read uh, sort of interpreted the phrase bowed down as uh, meaning under the weight of many burdens. Um, So if you've walked through life long enough, you've no doubt experienced some of those burdens um, where in any season of life you could just feel the weight of the world on your shoulder just sort of crushing you and pressing you down. That's what it's referring to. Um, We feel like we have no strength to continue, just want to tap out for a little while. Um, If you've seen Inside Out, sort of think of uh, the character of Sadness, how most of the time she's so overwhelmed by her own sadness that she just flops down and has to be dragged uh, all over the place. It's sort of like that. We just want to give up um, when we're bowed down. Um, so sometimes it feels like our circumstances are just too much and we're under the weight of the world. However, in those moments when we feel crushed, God is stooping down to us uh, and sort of picking us up, helping us stand up. Um, And when we have no strength of our own to stand up, uh, in our weakness, he meets us and he gives us strength. Um, All right, so starting in verse 9, Uh, I've combined sort of two together so this is six and seven Uh, God watches over the sojourners and upholds the widow and the fatherless Um, and it's sort of related but sort of not but sort of is so I just threw them together so this is six and seven 
So sojourners are wanderers. Um, they're searching for a home. They're looking for a place to feel welcome. Um, so for us, we may relate just in our spiritual journey. Um, we, may have, we may be wandering. We may be tr- figuring out what do I truly believe. Uh, we may be figuring out you know, what to do with our own doubts about God. Um, but through that wandering, he's watching over us. He's protecting us. Um, and every season of whether it's complete certainty or complete doubt, he's still there. Um, and he, he's given us a home. You know, whether we wander far away or we're close by him, we have a home in his kingdom. Uh, much like the prodigal son who needed to go off and figure himself out and uh, when he was ready to return home at, at his, uh, just, I don't know, I guess his eyes were open to the world out there. When he was ready to come home, the father still accepted him. Uh, even though he had wasted his fortune, he still loved him. So, so that's the sojourner, the widow and the fatherless. So the widow has lost her husband. Uh, the fatherless uh, are orphans. They don't have a father. So both husbands and fathers were seen as providers of protection and main sources of love. Um, so we may feel lonely. We may feel unsafe. We uh, may feel uh, just, I don't know, alone in the world, like there's no place for us to fit in, no family for us. Um, but no matter what the circumstance is, uh, or the amount of loneliness we feel, Uh, We have a heavenly father that's fighting with us and for us and protecting us and upholding us while he's loving us unconditionally. So sojourners, widows, and the fatherless are all welcome in the kingdom of God and are adopted into his family and given a true home. Um, So these are the seven things I've sort of listed out. And I'm sure we could pull from them some more stuff that we can sort of relate to. Um, But there's a good chance out of these seven that you at least relate to one of them, uh, if not most of them. And uh, whenever we do find we're walking through these seasons, uh, whether we're we're the oppressed or the hungry or the prisoner, whatever it may be, when we we relate to these things, we have two choices. Um, We can either try to find our salvation and deliverance and security in the temporal things of the earth, uh, the fruitless things that fade away. Or we can find our deliverance in God. We can put our hope in Him, um, wherein He will meet us where we are um, and provide for us and liberate us and love us um, and watch over us and protect us. And, uh, I think the psalmist sort of sees these things, the things that God does in our world. Um, he sees them as making God worthy of an endless hallelujah in his life, of a lifelong praise of the Lord. Um, he's probably experienced all, or at least most of these things in his own life. Um, so he's, he can say that because his hope is firm in the Lord. So verse 10 sort of ties it all back together uh, by focusing on the eternal nature of God. He says, the Lord will reign forever. 
Um, So as earthly kingdoms fade away, the kingdom of God remains as steadfast as it always has been. Um, The things of the earth cannot be depended on, cannot be depended on because one day they just fade away. Um, But God's rule and reign is never ending. Um, And not only is he eternal, but he is for us. So this is why the psalmist can confidently say he won't put his trust in princes or son of man. This is how he can say with confidence that he will proclaim hallelujah as long as he lives. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we get to the point where we can confidently say our hope is in the Lord, hallelujah. As long as I have breath, I will proclaim it um, like the psalmist. How do we get there? Um, Because I'm sure we all live lives where we experience the things of the world just throwing, heaping stuff on us. Um, and it's hard sometimes to genuinely proclaim hallelujah, praise the Lord, when it feels, when our feelings and our emotions and everything else is screaming otherwise. Um, so how can that be our default? Um, the short answer is that we must learn to say no to the temporal things of this earth and yes to God and to seeking and advancing his kingdom. And as we do that, we will continually experience his glory and goodness and we will be compelled to exclaim hallelujah again and again and again. Um, And I know I'm about to talk about the yoke and I know that's sort of done a lot at the ring, um, but the way we do this is by entering into the yoke with Jesus. And uh, what the yoke is, it's an it's a agricultural meta- metaphor um, that Jesus used to describe how we enter into a relationship of discipleship with him. Um, so after we're done, there's actually an actual yoke over here that you can go look at. Um, but what the yoke is, is you have two, two cattle and uh, you have a wooden bar with two loops. And one cattle, his head goes in one and the other goes in to the other so that they're actually attached. And this is how they teach younger ox and cows to plow a field. So you have a veteran and a rookie. And the veteran will plow the field like he always has. And uh, because the younger one is attached to him, he's forced to go along with the veteran, uh, forced to learn his every move and the way he does it. And eventually, as uh, the rookie learns to go left and right when he needs to go left and right, what you have is a a cow that so closely resembles the veteran cow um, that they're almost inseparable as far as how they plow the field. So just like that, we're invited to enter into the yoke with Jesus, uh, where we enter in and observe how he lives life and what he does and how he worships the Lord Um, and uh, I know it's sort of metaphorical but practically what this means uh, is that we enter into the yoke by doing the same disciplines he did and this summer in community groups uh, we're talking about a discipline walking through it um, each week Uh, and these are all things Jesus did to better know the Lord and to better commune with him. And uh, they're all perfect examples for us because as a holy and righteous human being, we have no better like partner in the yoke. He's the perfect plower, and we need to learn how to plow. He's the perfect human, and we need to learn how to be more Christ-like. 
Um, so we need to enter into the yoke by practicing the disciplines. He teaches us how to hear his voice and know his will through practicing prayer, scripture reading, silence, and solitude. He teaches us how to deny ourselves through the practicing of fasting and hospitality. He teaches us how to enjoy God and all that he's given us by practicing Sabbath. These are all things that uh, we can participate in and experience the Lord through um, and ultimately lead us to a place of hallelujah. Um, So if we want to truly live a life that's an overflow of our soul, proclaiming hallelujah, then we have to deny the false hope of the things that this world offers uh, and climb into the yoke with Jesus. And uh, so me and Melissa got a puppy like a month ago. And uh, on one of our very first walks, we uh, I had a very uh, vivid learning experience with the Lord. And uh, so if you have a dog, you probably know that their, their sense of smell is very keen. So if they catch a whiff of anything they want to explore more, their nose just goes straight into the dirt and they're not going to move. Um, so Chloe, that's our puppy, um, I was walking her and she always goes to these patches of mud where we walk her and she just goes straight into the dirt and she locks up her legs so she's not going to move. Um, if I try to pull her leash, she just tenses up even more and buries her nose in deeper. Um, so it gets to the point where I actually either have to go pick her up or drag her um, with her legs just stiffened out. And I think a lot of the times uh, that's how we are with our sin, with our idols. Um, we have our nose down. We're focusing on the earth, the earthly things. Um, when our God is trying to walk alongside us in the yoke and we sort of we're focused down on the mud below us, Uh, on the things that will fade away when the Lord just wants us to lift our eyes and see the green pasture ahead of us. And, you know, we can fight God and we can tense up and not want to walk, but he's strong enough to drag us. Um, But it's exhausting and it will cause pain if we don't turn away from our idols and turn away from the sin. Um, So why would we want that? Why would we want to say yes to the to the things of the earth, the things that are, are fruitless. Um, when we can walk just in sweet and genuine obedience alongside our Savior as he guides us to a place of more and more Christ-likeness. Um, so I hope there's some application there for you. I hope uh, you can take you know, this psalm and sort of pray through it and Let it guide you to becoming a person that can exclaim hallelujah um, for the rest of your lives. That as you look at the world around us, you don't get bogged down or depressed or anything anything like that. But you see the world as um, what it is, broken and in need of a a savior and a redeemer. And uh, we have the perfect one in God who's eternal, um, who already came and uh, won the battle. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna do a couple things before we sort of close out. I want to read Colossians the first half of Colossians three, and y'all don't need to read with me. I'd actually rather you didn't. So I'd rather these words just sort of go out and um, 
be almost like a prayer. And the band can come up. I'm going to read this passage, and then I'll pray and close out. And uh, the band's going to play two more songs. This is our response time. Um, If the way you feel like you need to respond is to stand up and scream these songs out, then do that. If you need to stand and just read along, read the truth, do that. If you need to sit and pray, please do that. Like, however you, the Lord is leading you to respond to this, do that. And, um, yeah, hallelujah. Our Lord reigns forever. It's good. All right, so I'm going to read Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and then I'll pray, and then we'll respond. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, scythen, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, to God the Father through him. Uh, Father, I just thank you for your word, that you uh, got it to us, Lord, that you made a way for us to have these words um, that just reveal you. Lord, I just pray that as we go tonight that we don't remain satisfied um, in where we are, that we continually feel like we need to push forward to seek you more um, so that we can get to a place where we proclaim hallelujah and we desire to praise you. Um, And Lord, I pray that as we just struggle to find um, ways to do this, to focus on you, that you give us grace that you make it uh, just real to us that we're not focused on failure or anything like that, but we're focused on you 
and your love and your grace and your goodness and your kindness towards us, Lord. Thank you for setting us free. Thank you for uh, sending your son to die for us that we may live. Um, and Lord, these are, these are why we can say hallelujah, these things. Um, just continue to bless us, Lord, and continue to push us forward in righteousness and Christ-likeness. Uh, we love you and we thank you for everything your son has done on our behalf. Amen.